following message entitled, Be On Your Guard, You're in War, part 10 of the series, Courageous Faith, was given by Joe Ryer on the 27th of September, 2015. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Well, if you have a Bible, open to the book of Joshua. If you're a guest and this is your first Sunday, my name is Joe, one of the pastors here. And we have been in a series of messages in the book of Joshua. So if you have your Bibles, flip to Joshua chapter 9. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you needy and asking for mercy and grace and strength. Lord, in a, a room this size with so many people of so many different backgrounds, we know that there can be all sorts of needs this morning. And Lord, we, we take confidence in the, the fact that you know every single one of us by name. Lord, you care for us individually. And Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, as, as we go through Joshua chapter 9, that you would speak to every single person in this room. Those who are strong in their faith, we pray they would grow stronger. Those who are weak and weary, we pray you would give them strength. Those who are not sure what they believe, we pray you would give them the gift of faith. But we ask you would do a thousand things this morning as your word is preached and proclaimed. Lord, I pray you would help me to accurately teach this passage. And Lord, thank you for the help that is found in every single page of your word. And Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. The title of the message is, Be on guard, you are in a war. Be on guard, you are in a war. Show of hands, how many of you like war movies? So movies that have wars in them. It's not a trick question. How many females like war movies? So, <laughs> so this isn't a man's message. So hopefully there, there is more than uh, one or two of you ladies that like war movies as well. And I, I'm using the term war very broadly so I want you to think of movies like Braveheart, The Patriot, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. I, I don't have a great memory, but I could probably watch those movies I just listed kind of day after day, night after night, and uh, be a pretty happy guy for a while. Not that I do that, but I probably could. Uh, well, what, what do we like about movies like that? We, I like the epic battles. These, you, you think of those scenes from The Lord of the Rings where there is just troop upon troop coming off of a hillside and then Gandalf riding in and cleaning house and, and you know, that does something inside of us that, that gets us excited. I like the, the ebb and flow of a war movie where the, the good guys are winning and then the bad guys kind of mount and attack back and, and the good guys start to lose ground or the empire strikes back. It, it builds drama and excitement. I like the, the villain who's cunning and crafty, but he's never quite as sharp as the hero, the victor. And I always like the war movies with happy endings. I don't like the ones with disappointing endings. Well, I'm saying all that because the book of Joshua, it really reads like one of these classic movies. It has these great, conquering, victorious moments like... The walls of Jericho go crumbling.
crumbling down. Or last week, as we learned, the, the, the city of Ai is, is conquered. As the Israelites are, are doing what God said, and they're hiding behind the city, and, and there's a sabotage as the, the troops go out after part of Israel, and the other part comes in and takes over the city. And it's, it's just this great building of momentum that God's the good guy, and His side is winning. His soldiers are victorious. But like these movies, I love how honest and real to life the, the Bible is. That this true account in the book of Joshua, it also has ebbs and flows. Israel shines. Joshua looks like the great military leader. And then suddenly, there's sin in the camp, as we learned in chapter 7. Or the enemy begins to mount, which is what's going to happen today. So we're going to see, in a sense... The people strike back this morning at the nation of Israel. And some of them do it in such a way that we would imagine. They start to work together to build unified front against God and His people. But there's one group we're going to read about today, the Gibeonites. They have a clever, cunning strategy to not be defeated by God and His army. So look in chapter 9. Verse 1. What we're going to see is the enemy is always scheming. Verse 1. As soon as all the kings were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea, toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So what's happening here is word has spread. God's army is beginning to gain ground in the promised land, just like God promised would happen. The problem is if you're on the other side, if you're that group of cities I just mentioned, that group of people that I just mentioned, you're beginning to see what's happening. There's a target, and you're starting to get to the center, to the bullseye. And you know it's just a matter of time till you're just another casualty like Jericho or AI. And they do what maybe we would do in their circumstances. They begin to gather together. They say, hey, wait a minute. If we're all going to get destroyed anyway, why don't we join forces and take them on together? Let's take on the Israel nation as one. It's a reasonable strategy. It's not an uncommon strategy. They, they in a sense, make allied forces. Well, there's one member of this group, the people of Gibeon. They have a, they have a different strategy. They have another strategy, maybe even a more effective strategy. And their strategy is they also are concerned that they may lose their city and they may be annihilated like the rest of the people. But they come up with a very clever, thought-out, planned, deceptive strategy. So look at verse 3. We're going to see the enemy now goes on the offensive. And use your imagination to picture this if we were watching this 
on a, on a screen. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys, wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out, patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all the provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. It's more than one way to fight an enemy. So you're catching what they're, they're doing. Their idea, some clever Gibeonite had an idea, hey, rather than let's just fight them fist to fist, here's what we're going to do. And they probably took weeks preparing for this. What they did was with their clothing, with their food, with their wineskins, they made everything look like they had traveled for miles and miles, years and years. Because somehow they knew that in Deuteronomy 20, God allows for the Jewish people to make a treaty, a covenant, with people that live far away. They weren't allowed to do it with their neighbors, but those far off they were allowed to do it with. So they come in. And Joshua, in that moment, it doesn't seem like he remembered, hey, we are in a war. This is wartime. So whoever comes knocking at our door may be our enemy, not our friend. And they may not just come with fists raised. They may come in cunning, sneaky ways. And the book of Joshua, it's obviously in the Old Testament, and as we've been saying week after week, it it has a lot of New Testament lessons for us. That before we get into the particulars of what happens, I think it's good to remember that we also are in a war. You and I are in a spiritual war. We are not in a peacetime as believers in Jesus Christ. We are not in our final destination. Heaven is our home. And until we get there, we are in a war spiritually. And that war will consist of many, many battles. But we, like them, we're vulnerable when we forget that we're in a war. When we forget there are real enemies inside and outside of us. That's why First Peter says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan himself prowling around, seeking someone to devour. That's still happening to this day. Ephesians, Paul writes, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Like the Jewish people in Joshua, we are in a war. We may not be in a present battle, but we are always 
in the war until we make it to heaven. Well, who are our enemies as Christians? The Bible has three primary enemies. The first is the world, the things that draw us away from Jesus Christ, the things that pull at our heartstrings and the things that we think will satisfy us more than Jesus Christ. Now, these can be sinful and moral things, or these can be things that are morally okay, but just lull us to sleep all the while our enemy is prowling around. The second enemy we have is the flesh, the old you that still remains inside of you. Now, you are a new creation in Jesus Christ, and God's Spirit has made you alive. But the old you is still in there. And the old you likes to rear its head, especially when we feed it by giving in to our sinful desires. And then the final enemy we have is Satan himself. The one that Peter talks about that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now these three enemies, they've been the demise of many, many Christians. They together form this combination that can ensnare and entangle many believers. But for us, it's not a hopeless battle. God's Spirit is inside of us. We have His Word. We can talk to Him at any time. And so, we don't have to give in to those three enemies. We can be victorious over all three of those enemies. There's probably no story that captures the reality of our journey as Christians than the famous book, Pilgrim's Progress. You remember the story, probably many of you, that it's a allegory of the Christian life. And Christian sets out as a new believer. He's excited about the Lord. But at times his flesh gets the best of him. And he sinks into deep and despairing depression. At times Satan himself is tormenting him. And his mind is on fire with doubt and anguish. At times the allure of the world and all that it offers is pulling at him. And yet what we see in that great story is the Lord is with them through all those temptations. The Lord keeps him, preserves him, and keeps calling him back. And as Pilgrim talks to the Lord and stays in this Word, he begins to make progress on the journey and eventually makes it to heaven. Why am I saying all this? When we're in a war we think about things in a different way. We, we're on guard. We're ready. We're prepared. We're going to see from Joshua and the other leader, leaders of Israel, they had a lapse in judgment as these Gibeonites showed up at their doorstep. And it could be because they forgot for a moment that they were in a war. Look at verse 7 of Joshua 9. But the men of Israel say, said to the Hivites, and Joshua, the Hivites and the Gibeonites are the same people, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? In other words, there are at least some of Joshua's leaders saying, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. These guys look a little suspicious. 
their, their, their shoes look a little too worn out. Their wineskins look a little too doctored up. Uh, there's at least a couple of them. Hey, wait a minute. I don't, I don't think it's a good idea. But then verse 8 and following happens. And Joshua said, We are your servants. Or they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? So they show up. We're, we're your weary servants. Joshua at least asks a good question. Who are you? And where do you come from? But Joshua and his men, as we're going to see in a moment, they're trusting their eyes. They see these men have garments that are worn out. They have bread that's stale and crumbly. And so they're, they're watching all of this. Verse 9, the Gibeonites answer. They said to him, Where do you come from? From a very distant country your servants have come. You can imagine people wiping the sweat of their brow when, he, when one of their guys says that. Because, here's why we came, because of the name of the Lord your God. So not only are they tricking with their appearance, they're going to bring in the Lord as part of the deception. And in one way, it's partially true. They did come because of the name of the Lord, because they thought the Lord was going to end their lives, but they came. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. Now keep in mind, what he did in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, that was 40 years ago. So that would be like 1975 for us today. So they were a little, slate, a little late on the arrival. Verse 10, And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who live in Ashtaroth. So our elders... And the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say, We are your servants. Come now and make a covenant with us. Now, if you aren't familiar with covenants, it's a binding agreement. It's, a, it's more than just your word. It's a deep binding agreement before the Lord. Verse 12, they present some more evidence. They pull out bread from their bag. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. You get the impression that they sent their best liar to the front of the line. So this is probably a guy who could pass a lie detector today. He's not blinking. His pulse isn't raised. His face isn't flushed. Uh, you know, he was just training for this moment all of his life. Verse 13, these wineskins were new when we filled them. And behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. You can imagine, they're, they're hamming this up. There's dramatic effect that's being displayed with this group. And if you're the Gibeonites, they might be thinking, I think we got them. These, I didn't think they'd go for it, but they, they seem that dumb. They're actually going to go for it. Now, if we were watching this in a movie... As a spectator, we might be thinking, oh no, not again. Don't do it! Do not take the bait, Joshua. You know better, Joshua. Don't do it. And we're going to see in a moment, Joshua takes the bait. But what's interesting is God's reason, diagnosis, for why Joshua and his men fall for the, the deception wasn't because of how effective the deception was. 
It was another reason, as we're going to see in verse 14. Well, what was that reason? The reason Joshua and his men took the bait is because they didn't seek the counsel of the Lord. Look at verse 14, and this brings us to the second point. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Verse 14. So the men, the Jewish men, took some of their provisions. So they're checking the bread. They're looking at the wineskin. They might even pick the sand off of a foot and they're checking it out. But verse 14, the second part, tells us what happened. But they did not ask counsel from the Lord. They did not seek the Lord. If you were here last week, last week, chapter 8, ends with renewing God's covenant with His people. And Joshua, or the other leaders, read all five books of the Old Testament, the first five books, nonstop. So they were reviewing all of God's Word. It was right there to seek the Lord, to not make covenant with your neighbor. All that was laid out before them. And yet, they didn't do it. Well, why didn't they do it? Well, they trusted in what they saw. They trusted in their own abilities, their own interrogation abilities. Okay, we're Joshua and we're the the mighty men of Israel. Surely we can just ask some questions. We can inspect the stuff. I imagine if the wives were there, it wouldn't have happened, but the Bible doesn't say that. But the guys, you know, they're a self-confident moment at that time. And, hey, we just defeated two cities. We're heading to the next ones. And they just did not stop to seek the Lord. The book of Joshua began, verse one, chapter 1, verse 8, with, with God giving very clear and in some ways simple instructions to Joshua as he takes the mantle from Moses. It's, it says in, in chapter 1, verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, you shall meditate on it day and night. So you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. So you're to read the first five books of the Bible and you're to do everything in the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible made clear that they're to seek the Lord and to follow His Word. And yet, those just simple phrase, they did not ask counsel from the Lord, is going to have some real long-term consequences. Deuteronomy 7, one of the first five books of the Bible, says, I'm not going to read it, but you can go look at yourself. Verses 1 through 4 says, You shall not make a covenant with them, your neighbors, and show no mercy to them. That was part of going to the promised land. And they took the bait and didn't seek the Lord. But before we as the spectators begin to throw our rotten tomatoes at them and yell at them and say, you morons, what are you thinking? I think it's good to ask ourselves this question. Are there times, have there been times where we trusted in what we saw with our eyes? We relied on our past experience about a decision And we didn't seek the Lord. We didn't go to His Word. We didn't seek counsel from trusted Christians. 
we were just wise in our own eyes. I've done that. There have been times in my life where I've rushed ahead. And the Lord here in Joshua is calling us, hey, hey, you're in a war. There are many enemies. But I have a very simple recipe for you to navigate through this. Do not be wise in your own eyes. You think about this way. Are there business transactions that you have rushed into hastily without consulting God, His Word, the counsel of others? The reason I'm adding the counsel of others, one, we're going to see it's a biblical idea, but even in this chapter, there's at least a minority of the counsel who thought this might be a bad idea, and they get dismissed completely. Is there a relationship that you are considering or have entered into without seeking the Lord, His Word, or the counsel of others? Is there a new job you're thinking about taking? Because at face value, it pays a lot more than the one you make. It seems to be a good fit for your abilities. But you have heard that the boss is maybe a little shady, a little corrupt at times. But you figure you could just work that out. Have you sought the Lord? Have you sought His Word? Have you sought His counsel? Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Joshua and his men in that moment were leaning hard on their own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. So how do we fight this temptation? How could Joshua and his men have fought against it? Well, the first is we ask God about it. Whatever that decision is that comes to mind, we go to Him. In Philippians 4, verse 6, Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, so that's your just normal communion and fellowship with God, and supplication, that's your very specific prayer request. Lord, I don't know about this situation. I don't know about this relationship. I don't know what to do with this over here. Lord, could you help me? He says, Do that with thanksgiving. Let your request be known to God. As believers in Jesus, you can come to God at any moment of the day. So we fight against the temptation to be wise in our own eyes by just going to the Lord, seeking His counsel. We go to His Word. Earlier in the morning, Joe shared from Psalm 119, verse 105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. There are many things that are very clear in God's Word. That if we go to His Word, we get clarity immediately. Now, that's not all things. Life can be complex. Situations get very complicated. But there are some very clear things that God's Word is not fuzzy about at all. And we need to look at His Word and let that Word be a lamp to our feet. And then lastly, how do we fight against the... the, the, the temptation to be wise in our own eyes, we seek counsel from His people. I think it's good to do in that progression. Seek the Lord, seek His Word, seek counsel from His people. Proverbs 15.22 says, 
without counsel, without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. If Joshua and his men would have done these three things, they would not have gotten themselves into the trouble that we're going to see they're, they're about to enter into. All of this, Joshua chapter 9, could have been avoided by seeking counsel, obeying God's word, and listening to the dissenting voices. But here's the thing, Joshua and his men, they they took the bait. So now they have a decision to make. They took the bait, they made a covenant that they should not have made. And they, in a sense, are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They are there, and they are um, aware of that. Look at verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So before they find out that these guys have completely duped them, Joshua makes a covenant with them. Part of the covenant, we're not going to touch you. We're not going to harm you. It is done. Look at verse 16. Three days later, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, They heard that they were their neighbors and they lived among them. Didn't take long. Three days later, uh, imagine being the one coming to Joshua. Well, you know what, Joshua, we got got a situation on our hands. You know, those sandals and that bread we tasted and the wineskin that you held and you examined in the light and you were totally convinced of. Well, we were all wrong. We have been duped. And... Now, they have a decision to make. What do they do? Remember, they're in a war, and part of the war plan is you are to conquer every people group in the land of Canaan. And so that means you are to eliminate them. But now, Joshua, you have made a covenant with them. What are you to do? So they missed it big time. And I I think there's application for us because there can be times in our Christian lives where we miss it big time. You didn't seek counsel. You didn't look at His Word. You didn't talk to the Lord. Or maybe you sought counsel and you ignored it completely. And so you've sinned and now you're at the three-day-later mark and you're realizing what you've done. And you realize there is going to be severe consequences possibly for what you've done. Well, as a pastor, I've seen Christians in that three-day window of time. And it's a dangerous time for a Christian. It's a very vulnerable time for a Christian. And the reason is, when you've really blown it, there is a strong impulse to make an even worse decision to make up for the first one you just made. And I've seen Christians who, the thinking kind of plays out like this. I shouldn't have been in that relationship. I know I shouldn't have, but I am in it now. And then maybe they say, well, maybe now I'm pregnant because of that relationship. Or the man might say, now I'm a father. And then they make an even worse decision 
about the life of the child. So it begins to snowball, and they're all doing it because they're still trying to figure it out on their own. And it's a dangerous time. And yet, the remedy is to go back to those three things, to seek the Lord, seek forgiveness if forgiveness is needed, seek wisdom from His Word, and to seek counsel from His people. But to do that takes humility and obedience, which brings us to the final point. When we mess up, we need to take the low road of humility and obedience. Joshua and his men, they they did miss it. They missed it big time, according to the law of Moses. But what's an evidence of God's grace is they respond in the right way. Look at verse 17. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Jephthah, Berath, Kirath, Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. In other words, Joshua and the leaders of Israel, they took a stand. We messed up, but we made a covenant before God with His people. So now we have to keep our word. For us, for you and I, we're not in covenants with people with this weight behind it. So it can seem like, well, did you really have to do that? Well, they really had to do it because they made a covenant and they swore to the Lord. So it was an issue between the God of Israel and them. And so they missed it by being deceived. They weren't going to miss it again. Joshua and the other men, they, they came full circle and now they were fearing the Lord more than they were fearing the response of the people. And the pressure that, that comes with it. Look at verse 19. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live. live. Let less wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water from the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. A commentator, Ralph Davis, says this about this passage. He says, Israel was stuck. They must not break an oath, though it had been wrongly obtained because they had wrongly neglected the wisdom of God. What to do? Live as faithfully as they could within that twisted situation. This demand spills over into experience. Sometimes God's people are called to live obediently amidst the results of their folly. There are times when our preferences, our conveniences, our justifications must not be allowed to dissolve those difficult situations. Joshua and his men, they were doing the right thing. A million plus people, the nation of Israel, did not agree with their decision in that moment. 
They were murmuring. They were saying, this isn't right. And we don't get the motive. The motive could be a genuine motive to obey God's word from the Old Testament. Another motive could be, hey, we might have gotten some of the spoil from this group of people. We don't know the motive, but the pressure was immense. If it was 2015, that you know, a million people going to Facebook, to Twitter, hey, Joshua has lost it. He calls himself a leader. He's no leader. He said God called him. God didn't call him. You know, you can just imagine the venom that was there. And yet, Joshua and his men, they, they feared the Lord. And they took the low road of humility and obedience. You may be in that very identical spot this morning. You're in that three-day window has passed. There are consequences. And inside of you is a strong impulse to do something else that you might think is wise in your own eyes, but you know at your deepest level it's not what God's Word says. It's not what God's people would say. And so you're, you're teetering. Well, the Lord wants to call you to the low road of humility and obedience. And as you do, you will find grace. The Bible promises that God gives grace to the humble. One of the strategies of Satan is he loves to isolate Christians who sin. I've seen it over and over. They get further and further away from God's people, God's Word, and then they're just left to themselves and to whatever whispers in their ear. And then there's lies like, I can't, you know, no one will want me to come back. No one was going to believe how, how far I went. No one's going to love me or welcome me or accept me. That's just not true. The whole gospel of Jesus Christ is about Jesus living and dying for sinners and welcoming us all into His family. And so you need to take the low road of humility and obedience. And that's what these men did. And we're going to see that they did it wisely. They did it in a careful way. But they did it in such a way that it ended up being a blessing to the very deceivers that put them in this situation from the start. Look at verse 22. Joshua summoned them, the Gibeonites. He said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you, when you're dwelling among us, you're neighbors? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawlers of water for the house of my God. In other words, they were assigned menial tasks within the house of Israel. Verse 24, they answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. What we're going to see is they had some kind of faith even mingled with their cunning deceit. They really believed God was who He says He was. And we know their faith was genuine eventually because they never revolt. Hundreds and hundreds of years later in the Bible, the Gibeonites show up repeatedly on the side of Israel. Verse 25, And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, to do to us, do it. 
they also were taking the low road of humility. If you're going to lop off our heads, lop off our heads. Verse 26. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. And Joshua made them that day cutters of wood, drawlers of water, for, this is really important, the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. In other words, in God's mercy, in Joshua's kindness, they had to do these menial tasks, but where did they do them? They did them before the altar of the Lord. They did them in the presence of God. They were at the sweet spot of Israel day after day after day after day. So we see that even at the tail end of this account, you see God's mercy not just on Joshua and his men as they come back to the Lord, but God's mercy on absolute deceivers and liars who begin to come to God on God's terms and not their own. And that should give us hope. That should give any of you hope who are not yet Christians. Heaven will be filled with men and women who were once liars, deceivers, schemers. There's a bunch of us in this room today that have been forgiven, washed, and cleansed. It's so cool that Years and years later, when King David had his mighty men, his inner circle of soldiers for God's army, one of them was a Gibeonite. One of them was from this same group of people. God had forgiven these deceivers, and they became part of God's family. It's a glimpse from the old to the new that is always God's plan to have a people for himself from every tribe tongue, and nation. And so, if you're not a believer, come to Jesus. And He will welcome you in. John 6.37, Jesus says, Whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. Stumbling, fumbling Christians, whoever comes to Jesus, He will not cast you out. Those of you who are filled with doubt and anger towards God, if you come through Jesus Christ, He will never cast you out. We serve a God who is merciful, gracious, kind. We need to run to Him this morning. What we're going to do today, instead of singing at the end, I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to have a prayer team that will come up. I'm going to dismiss, but I want to encourage you to respond to God's Word. If there's an area where you feel like, I just need prayer from God's people, I would strongly encourage you to respond. Now, you don't have to tell them everything if, if it's just not possible, but I would encourage you to respond. So let's pray. You guys can stand. And then we'll close. If the prayer team could come up while I'm praying as well. Lord, you are an awesome, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-wise God. You're a God who speaks and draws broken hearts, confused hearts, 
stubborn hearts to Yourself. And Lord, we pray as we close this meeting that You would care for those who, who need care from You, from Your Spirit, from Your Word, from Your people. And Lord, we look to You and we thank You for the promise that You will never cast us out if we come to You, Jesus. I pray that would fill everyone with hope and faith. Lord, we love You and we ask all this in your name. Amen.